Hello, welcome to The Ant Hill, a podcast from The Conversation. I'm Annabelle Bly. And I'm Will DeFratis. This month we're delving into the world of memory, how it works, who controls it, and what if we just rather everyone forgot about that embarrassing thing we did once. More on that later. But first, Will, tell me, what is your earliest memory? So my earliest memory that I'm aware of, anyway, is there during the great storm of 1987. Um, I was three and a bit and being up in my toilet at my parents' old house in London and hearing intense winds and sort of trees crashing down all around us. And I think my mum was there. Um, and then we woke up the next morning and found out one of said trees uh, squished our car. That sounds like some intense wind. Well, that was a good memory. Uh, a lot better than a number of our colleagues, uh, which I know because I went around the conversation office and asked people what their earliest memories were. Most were pretty stumped, but there was one that stood out. My mother claims that I can remember being born. That's Laura Hood, the conversation's politics editor. Apparently when I was um, two or three years old, I ran up to my mum crying and said, Mummy, I was born in a church and there were all these soldiers there and nobody would help me. And she claims that that's evidence that I remember the moment of my birth because I was born in um, the very old wing of uh, the local hospital which had stained glass windows in the room. And it was quite a traumatic experience for me. I was a twin and I'd had my brother sitting on my head for nine months. So I came out of the room um, rather bruised and battered. And because we were twins, um, it was quite an event in the hospital at the time, um, back in those days. So the room was absolutely packed to the rafters with medical students who had been brought in and allowed to stand on benches in rows um, to watch the spectacle of these twins being born. And my mum claims that my belief that there was a room full of soldiers relates to the fact that I saw all of these people standing in rows watching me being born. She claims that this memory came to me when I was a toddler and I related the story to her. Do you remember that now? No, I do not remember that now at all, no. So I, she, it's her claim that I remember it. I do not know if I do. What's your earliest memory? My earliest memory is um, running, uh, thinking that I was running away from home, but only getting as far as the dustbins, um, hiding behind the dustbins and incurring the extreme wrath of my mother. How old were you? Maybe five. So what about you, Anna, about any uh, memory of being born? Any memory of a memory of being born? I'm afraid not. I definitely fall in the category of boring earliest memories. Random snapshots from nursery school, eating hula hoops off my fingers after stacking as many up as I could, stuff like that. Fair enough. Okay, well, hopefully on this podcast we can help you get to the bottom of your patchy memory. We'll be talking to psychologists, historians, political scientists, all about how and why we remember some things and why it might be best if we forgot others. So first up, our science editor Miriam Frankel finds out how memories actually work in our brains and the extent to which we can trust what we think we can remember. Get ready to be surprised and maybe even a little disturbed at how malleable our memories are and how common it is for humans to have false memories. It starts with a story about the poet William Wordsworth and a trip to his grave. Just recently, my wife 
had bought me for Christmas a trip to the Lake District, and we stayed in this fantastic hotel near the Lake Grasmere. Now, I'd been to Grasmere many years earlier, and uh, I'm quite interested in poetry, and, of course, Wordsworth is buried at Grasmere. And I wanted to go and see Wordsworth's grave because I remembered it as being fantastic. It's like these two gravestones, him and his sister, are buried side by side. On the edge of Grasmere, looking out over the lake, with this wonderful sort of lilac tree over it, and the really old church next to them and everything. And I had a vivid, vivid image of it. So I described it to my wife, Judith, and we went off to <laughs> Grasmere. Uh, uh, and we went to go and see Wordsworth's grave, okay? Now, it turns out that Grasmere is about a mile away from the village of Grasmere, so you can't see the lake. The church is in the middle of the village. Right? There is no lake anywhere near it. <laughs> but he is buried next to his sister. But then the whole Wordsworth family are buried there. I mean, my memory, my original memory, is just these two gravestones. That was Martin Conway, a professor of psychology at City University, talking about a so-called false memory. We may not want to believe it, but all of us are guilty of remembering things that never actually occurred, even experts like Martin. Sometimes there are just everyday experiences, such as whether we went to a party 10 years ago, or whether we just think we did because everyone else was talking about it. But sometimes they can have serious consequences, especially if we are a witness giving testimony in a trial. Probably what was going on in my mind was I was imagining this wonderful kind of romantic, lyrical sort of setting for his, uh, his memorial, his grave, which fitted perhaps with some of his poetry. And quite unconsciously, my memory, my, my mind had shaped my memory up to fit my beliefs, if you see what I mean, which is what happens a lot of the time. That's the thing about memory. The way we remember autobiographical events is nothing like a video recording, storing every detail of our lives so that we can replay it whenever we need to. It's very prone to error. Studying false memory in the laboratory is notoriously difficult. Neuroimaging studies have shown that many of the same brain regions that are active for true memories are also active for false memories. On a behavioral level, things are even more complicated. How do you know for sure that your subject really experiences as true what is actually false? To find out, scientists typically plant false memories in study participants and make sure they are convinced they are true. This has been successfully done many times, and it turns out we are more easily manipulated than you may think. Here's Martin again. One of the uh, procedures that's used in this sort of area is you get together some people you want to test their memories. And uh, you might say to them, listen, we want to uh, look at your childhood memory, your memory for childhood. Can we have your permission to write to your mother and maybe get her to send us some events she thinks you will remember? And then we'll get you to try and remember them. And then you put in an event you've made up. And, uh, and then you get them to try and remember them. And you find about 30% of people come to have a false memory. A common false memory that researchers plant in people is that they knocked over a bowl of soup at a wedding when they were a kid. Not only do people claim to remember doing this, they often start adding elaborate bits of details, such as whose wedding it was, the time of the year, or who they spilled the soup over. Similar tricks can be played with people's short-term memories. Here's another experiment. and I, I usually uh, do this one when I speak to groups of barristers, and I speak to them a lot. And they all hate it because they think it's a trick, but it isn't. So let's say I show you a list of words, and the words are things like bed, alarm clock, pillow, duvet, etc. But I don't show you the word sleep. 
Okay. And then later on, I'll show you those same words again, but this time with a group of new words all mixed together. And I include the word sleep. Right, and I say, all your job to do is just to recognize these words. You know, was this a word I showed you before or not? If it's not, say no. Be absolutely certain you're right. Don't, don't guess. And then I also ask you, do you have recollective experience? That means, do you really remember it? Does an image come to mind? Maybe when you saw the word last time, you had an image of your bed in your bedroom or something like that. In those circumstances, you will get around about 95% of people absolutely certain they remember seeing the word sleep even though they never saw it. And that's because your brain, when you're seeing the words the first time round, is saying, oh, these are words that are all about sleep, or all about bedrooms. Or they're building the, you know, the brain is saying, well, mapping the words onto the schema. And so well, then when you come to recognise the words, anything that's highly schema-related will be recognised, even though it wasn't actually there. That's a very simple demonstration, but it shows what happens all the time in the real world. For example, when you see a robber running out of the bank, you typically also remember that he or she was carrying a bag with loads of money in it. That's what your mind does. It makes associations and it takes shortcuts. One group of people that may be particularly interested in false memories are advertisers. Sue Sherman, a senior lecturer in psychology at Keele University, has done some studies that they may want to hear about. I've conducted research in which participants are presented with lists of brand names rather than words. When they're presented with supermarkets, for example, such as Sainsbury's, Asda, Morrison's, they will often have a false memory for the non-presented supermarket Tesco's. When they're tested a week later, their correct memories uh, decrease, while their false memories actually increase. Sue also tells me about a recent study in which participants were presented with a choice of brands, for example, three different brands of soft drinks. They then chose their favourite brand and had a photograph taken with it. But a week later, when they were shown a doctored version of that photograph with another brand in it, they often believed that they had actually chosen this switched brand and actually reported liking it more than they did before the test. So there's a lot of potential for false memories to be used by advertisers. But why is our memory so unreliable? Sue tells me it's all to do with how our brains have evolved. It's the price we have to pay for making sense of the world in the way that we do. It requires a huge amount of processing capacity to store even a semi-permanent account of each instant or experience. If you, if you simply think about the amount of times in your life that you've had breakfast, for example, to store all of you and be able to retrieve uh, details about whether you had toast with butter or jam or marmite and whether you had tea or coffee would require a lot of capacity. Um, and usually you don't want access to this level of detail. So we normally just want to access the, the sort of the gist of our past experiences without each of these little details. So we're interested in what the film was about and whether we enjoyed it rather than what we were wearing or the face of the person who sold us the popcorn. Um, and lastly, we actually use our episodic memory system to imagine possible future events. You know, do we want to get a cat? Where do we want to go on holiday? What might it be like? What things do we need to take with us? And this future imagining is possible because our memory system is constructed in nature. Although false memories are a normal consequence of our memory processes, some people may be more prone to develop them than others. According to Sue, people with anxiety are more likely to experience false memory. Martin has some other ideas, and it's all down to how willing we are to conform to what's expected of us. 
we do know that conformity is a dimension of personality, so it's going to vary in different sorts of people. So there might be an element of that. And you remember the famous experiments by Milgram where you got people to give other people electric shocks and they'd just keep on doing it and doing it and doing it if the man wore a white coat and looked like he was in charge. You know, so, uh, but there are individual differences in it. Some people don't conform as much as others. What does seem to take place is if you say to someone, oh, look, your mother says you went to a wedding, knocked over a bowl of soup, right? And you say, I just, I just have no memory of that at all. Uh, so if you now say to them, well, look, just relax. Childhood events are really difficult to remember. So close your eyes and just try and bring to mind some images, you know, of, of that time. and let, Just let it happen. Then you can get it up to 60%, no problem. That's where 60% of participants' memories in a study are false ones. It shows how elaboration and leading questions can implant false memories in people's brains. In fact, Martin argues that people who elaborate more may be more likely to have false memories. There are some experiments that have shown that we can slightly reduce false memories by warning people that they exist. But it's unlikely that we can ever eliminate them from our day-to-day life. But what is the impact of such experiences on society? One of the major problem areas is the law. I think what's important here is getting an understanding of what the function of memory is and how it works. And this is something that typically agencies that have to deal with memory as evidence, such as the law and witness memory, haven't been able to do that and are resistant to doing it. So the most commonly held view of memory amongst the public and amongst the police and lawyers and barristers and judges is that memory is like a video or a set of photographs. And it absolutely is not. So if you have that belief, if that's your starting view of of the nature of memory, then it's going to lead you into doing all sorts of crazy things, like asking people questions that they can't answer, but they attempt to answer because they think they should. It's easy to see how this could happen in a police interview room. So let's say you're a witness and I'm a police officer and I say to you, can you remember what you were wearing on that night? then you might unconsciously to yourself think, well, he's a police officer, he must know that I'm able to remember that. So let me think, what was I wearing? Well, I don't know, usually I wear my black dress Mm -hmm. when I'm going out. So yeah, I was wearing my black dress, right? Which may or may not be true. You might be wearing jeans and a T-shirt, who knows? So what would happen if we had a more scientifically informed view of human memory? Martin illustrates how it could change the legal system. Let me give you an example. The first one is a case of historic sexual abuse. So someone walks into a police station, a woman said, and says, I've just remembered, I remember last night, bizarrely enough, watching the TV, that I was sexually abused by my uncle when I was four years old. And this woman is now 40, so it's 36 years ago she's remembering. And then she gives an account of her memory. And in this account, there are all sorts of details in it, such as the colour of the wallpaper, what time of the day it was, you know, the curtains are halfway up and I could see the streetlight shining in, things like this, right? Lots of other details. All of which we know people cannot remember from this period of childhood. Nonetheless, that type of memory would then uh, be approved by the police for a prosecution. It would go to the Crown Prosecution Service and then they would prosecute the person. And no doubt a court would find them guilty. It must be true. She remembers what the colour of the wallpaper was. It's the kind of belief they have because her memory's like a video, right? Now, let's imagine the same woman, in a different circumstance, goes to the police station and says, look, I was raped last night. I was at a party and I was raped. Right? And they say, right, OK, we'll take a statement. 
And she can't really remember what the guy looked like. It was a guy. She can't remember the colour of his hair. She's not sure what his jacket was wearing. She didn't know what happened immediately afterwards. She'd had a few drinks. There's probably no chance in a million that that would go forward to a prosecution. But bizarrely, the second case is much more what human memory is like than the first case. So you probably don't know this, but the attrition rate in complaints of rape is 93%. So of all the complaints of rape that were made, only 7% go forward. And that's because often the memory is judged not to be this video-like memory. So a more realistic view of memory could potentially shake up how rape cases are prosecuted and what is considered to be trustworthy testimony. Here's a real-life example which shows just how unreliable our memory can be in these situations. This happened to quite a famous memory psychologist in the 1970s. So this woman was raped in her flat, and she called the police and everything, and they began an investigation, but they had a good idea who'd done it. And so they wanted to move fast. So the following day, they said, right, we're going to have a line-up, and they just grabbed people off the street, one of whom was this famous psychologist. And so he got him in the line, <laughs> and they said to the woman, right, go down the line up and just, just point to the one you think it is. Right? So, so, of course, she points to the psychologist. <laughs> but the psychologist had the perfect alibi. The rape had taken place at 8 o'clock in the evening, and he'd been on a TV channel being interviewed. And it turned out that, that the TV had been on in her flat on that channel. And while she was raped, she must have seen his face. And the two things had just got mixed up together in her mind. Of course, whether or not it becomes a legal issue, false traumatic memories can become a huge problem for the individuals who have them and for the person who treats them. I don't think it's uh, necessary for a therapist to judge whether a memory they're told is true or false. I mean, there are some outstandingly good therapists out there in the world and what they would want to do is they'd want to uh, find out what the meaning of this memory was for you, the individual and what the emotionality uh, involved in it was and uh, how we could learn to deal with those meanings and those emotions. That's what you know the good therapist would want to do. But there are other therapists who, in my view, aren't as good, who sometimes start out from the view that everyone's been abused. It's just a question of remembering your abuse. As we've learned, it's natural to have false memories. But as memory is such an integral part of who we are, isn't it a little concerning that we are so easily manipulated? One recent study illustrated this danger very clearly. Scientists asked people to answer questions about their moral and political standpoints, such as whether prostitution should be legalized. They then doctored the questionnaire so that it looked like people reported having the opposite view of what they actually had. Shockingly, when they showed these manipulated answers to the participants, instead of pointing out the error, they would start defending the doctored view. So you can never be too sure of your life story not even your opinions or beliefs. Some confabulation may be good to help you hold all the bits and pieces together, but there are risks involved. Just don't believe everything you tell yourself. Miriam Frankel there, The Conversation's science editor. Now, from memories of things that didn't actually happen, we turn to the act of deliberate forgetting, and on a big scale. What happens when you can't trust what's written in your school textbooks? Or if you think they are only telling part of the story? 
the part that your government wants you to remember. Our colleague Gemma Ware looked into some recent allegations of history being whitewashed and why the past is often such a contentious issue in the present. The Soviet view of the past was not something you questioned if you grew up behind the Iron Curtain. I mean, I well remember going to a conference in Berlin in, I think it would have been about 1988, and there was someone there from East Germany. And uh, she said that, you know, with the textbooks that they had, and she brought along some examples, and they did look pretty dull, it has to be said. What they, what they learned at school was to sort of have two parts of the mind going, so that one part was absorbing the stuff in the textbook that the teacher sim- simply presented, because you had to know that, you had to come out with it in lessons, you had to come out with it in the exams. That's Sean Lang, senior lecturer in history at Anglia Ruskin University in Cambridge. And the other part wasn't so much filled with anything. Simply, it was questioning, sort of um, keeping a large part of your mind open because you just didn't know if what you were being told was true and you suspected it probably wasn't, or at the very least, that it wasn't the whole story. So it's a sort of double think, if you like, uh, to use that phrase from George Orwell, um, but not quite in the way that, that he meant, um, because there, there's a sort of, yes, this is what we, we've been told, but we don't really know what the truth is, so that the truth became a sort of mystery, mysterious idea that somewhere, somewhere, one might actually have access to, but probably not in your school textbook. For centuries, the telling of history has been used as a means to control the way future generations see their place in the world, to control what is remembered and what is forgotten. Before there were textbooks, there were official histories that stamped a certain view of the past on the present. Once the teaching of history became an established part of modern schooling for every child, So the opportunities grew for textbooks to present certain interpretations of historical events or miss out whole parts of history that governments would rather their citizens didn't dwell upon. You still see this today in strong states where governments have a firm grip on the contents of state-sanctioned textbooks. Like in Russia, under President Vladimir Putin. This school textbook in in Russia, particularly in recent years, has been very much geared towards saying how, how great a leader Putin himself is, because the textbook will go right up to date. But also, particularly, it's the, it's the issue of Stalin and the Russian Revolution and the Second World War, or as it's known in Russia, the Great Patriotic War. Putin very much models himself on Stalin um, as a sort of good, strong, hardline leader, the person who can sort of see the country through an emergency and defy the rest of the world, which is essentially the way in which Stalin is presented. Stalin is glorified as the great leader who won the war. And all the mass killings that went on in the purges in the 1930s and the enormous scale of death that there was during the process in the late 20s and 1930s of what was called collectivization of agriculture, uh, in which um, some millions of peasants um, died, is essentially sort of brushed aside or where it has to be noticed, I mean, particularly in the purges, because they are so well known, then it's simply presented as a sort of necessary part of building up a strong Russia, um, you know, just a regrettable necessity, the sort of thing which sadly has to happen, like breaking eggs in order to make an omelette. It's when the historical omissions deeply offend your neighbours that things start to get really tense and memory turns into a frontline geopolitical issue. That's what happened in Japan. Both Korea and China have been angered by what they see as the historical whitewashing of Japan's actions in the years leading up to and during World War II. Most recently, this has focused on the issue surrounding comfort women. To explain, We called up Taku Tamaki, a lecturer in international relations at Loughborough University, who studies the Asia-Pacific region. 
Yes, I think simply put, there's been allegations uh, that many women in Korea, China and elsewhere were um, were used as sex slaves um, during the war in the 1940s. Um, many of the South Korean women, Chinese women, other women have come forward and asked the Japanese government to admit that there were sex slaves, comfort women, and to be to apologize for what had happened. Now, the Japanese government has said uh, repeatedly that there's no record of comfort women, there's no record of women used as sex slaves, and as far as, far as any reparations are concerned, the peace treaties that have been signed by um, Japan and neighboring countries uh, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s um, they should have extinguished any uh, liabilities for Japan's wartime record. So on the one hand, you have um, the women who came forward calling for apologies. And then on the other hand, you have the Japanese government says, well, we don't have any records of that, so we shouldn't be apologizing at this point. In 2011, two Korean artists erected a statue of a comfort woman in front of the Japanese embassy in Seoul, sparking a diplomatic incident. After more statues followed, an agreement was reached between Korea and Japan in 2015 over the comfort women issue, in which Japan apologised to all those women affected and agreed to set up a fund to help the victims. But the historical conflict has continued. When another statue appeared in December 2016 in front of the Japanese consulate in Busan in South Korea, Japan recalled its ambassador to South Korea in protest. The installation of the statue near the Japanese consulate in Busan will not have a positive impact on Japan's South Korean relations, and it is strongly regrettable... He only returned in April 2017. And all this occurred as the text of a state-sponsored South Korean school textbook, which refers to comfort women, was being finalised to include a mention of the statues. Taku does not believe that the Japanese government has a specific agenda to whitewash history. It's hard to see whether there is any discernible agenda per se. Uh, obviously, the current Prime Minister, uh, Shinzo Abe, is very much a nationalist. He has a nationalist credential and he's stated repeatedly that he wants to, to change the Japanese constitution, the pacifist constitution, and to, to strengthen Japan and to regain Japanese dignity. So there is a nationalist streak in what he's saying. Uh, but this is not something that's happened just under the Abe administration. It's been going on for quite some time. The Japanese government wants to move on from these diplomatic spats caused by the actions of its predecessors. Rather than dwell on the past, it takes a more future-oriented approach to diplomacy, according to Taku. Indeed, I think from the Japanese government's perspective, uh, the past is always the sticking point. So whenever you hear the Japanese government talk about the future-oriented diplomacy, it is really a flip side of saying, look, the past is always around. We want to move forward. But the South Koreans, the Chinese, the Asian neighbors are not allowing us to do that. However much the government might want to stop talking about the past, memory of the war remains a hot political issue in Japan. Taku says the country is divided between those on the right who want Japan to deny the accusations and criticise South Korea and China for playing the history card, and those on the left who want the Japanese government to take a softer, conciliatory approach. On the whole, though, the nation as a whole has a particular memory of war, and that is one of death and destruction. So the war is not necessarily a glorious one for most of the, the people in Japan. Only within the right, you do see people talking about um, glorifying the past. But in general, uh, there's, a, there's a bit of a sympathy involved. But when the Japanese people do look at the way the Chinese and the Koreans talk about the past and repeat the same allegations, some of them, sometimes people do get tired of it. 
The region is already on tenterhooks because of territorial disputes over ownership of islands in the East China Sea. Taku says he hopes these debates about the past don't get any worse, for the sake of future generations. I think there is a sense that um, the younger generation cannot really tell when the Second World War in the Pacific started. So there is, there seems to be a fundamental gap in knowledge. And that is, to a certain extent, quite worrying. And the ease with which the younger generations um, sort of hook up to or to to be amenable towards some of the more extreme right-wing views of glorifying or glorifying the past, and they can read it in comic books, for instance. So the ease with which they can tap into a particular glorified view of the history is somewhat worrisome, I think. Here in Britain, changes to the way history is taught to children have also brought their own controversies. British children used to be schooled firmly in the ways of empire. By the 1940s, Empire Day, a national celebration replete with music, marching and saluting the flag, had become a firm fixture in the school calendar on the 24th of May, Queen Victoria's birthday. I want to tell you, children, that you are, each one of you, a member of the Empire... But after most of Britain's former colonies across the world won independence in the decades following the Second World War, children rapidly stopped learning about what life had been like under British colonial rule. And when the empire finally made a comeback onto the national curriculum, it was in a very different guise. Here's Jean Lang again. It came back in actually in the 2000s, um, essentially as a response to the multicultural nature of British society and the recognition that you can't really understand that if you haven't got some idea of Britain's imperial role and why it is that we have this particular sort of ethnic mix in the in the nation that we have today. So it's it was uh, not brought back as a sort of tub thumping um, imperialistic jingoistic um, um, exercise in the way that you know if you go back in the day to the you know, heyday of empire, um, that's the sort of message that not surprisingly, children did um, did pick up. Sean explains that not everybody was happy about the way empire was being taught to British school children, with complaints that it was giving the younger generation too negative a view. Some of them are historians with a with a particular view of the empire, and then you get people who are not sort of in the professional education world, but who sort of feel that uh, their memory of uh, of the empire, which was always a very positive one. I mean, I'm talking here obviously of an older generation of people with uh, with memories of the uh, of the days of empire, uh, or at least the end of the uh, of empire, the 50s and 60s, when the image that was received and generally I think believed in was that the empire was essentially a force for good. There might be some very bad things that it did, but it was essentially benign force and this is this sort of memory that people have got and so they feel that if you get a very very negative view or a relentlessly negative view um, then you know you are, are getting a distorted view not just of, of history but of course of their own history and in some degree I suppose of their own identity. This all rose to a head in 2010 when the then Secretary of State for Education Michael Gove began a push to reform the English history curriculum with the intention of presenting a more favourable view of the British Empire. Now, I think that sort of controversy was always a bit uh, ill-informed because on actually what British history teachers very much enjoy doing is taking a consensus and analysing it and subjecting it to question and raising questions about it and saying, is that actually the, the case? The great thing about British teachers is that <laughs> that's a, quite a bolshy lot. Um, and if you sort of try to tell them how to teach, then it's a pretty good idea you know, that they won't do it. While Gove did push through reforms to the curriculum, some of the more contentious lines that had been proposed, such as Britain and her empire were removed. And since then, a study of British textbooks and curriculum specifications published in 2016 by Terry Hayden at the University of East Anglia 
found that empire was an integral part of the curriculum and that there was no anti-British slant being taught in schools. Underlying these debates are questions about the nature of history teaching and how to teach students to have an inquiring mind. The use of textbooks is crucial to this. So, well, ever since the 1970s, in this country, the whole emphasis on history teaching has been upon developing some sort of active learning, some sort of skills in which there's a lot of questioning, uh, questioning of evidence, weighing of evidence and so on. And this has provoked um, some people to say, well, this is producing a very left wing view of history, because instead of simply um, accepting sort of kings and queens and um, you know, accepting what you might call the received version of the past, um, children are sort of questioning it. As children grow up in a much more digital environment, where everything is kind of instantly Googleable, and you never know what the first source is that you're going to come across when you search for a particular historical event, it's possible that less well-sourced versions of history can create a misremembering of certain events, if we're not careful. And I think, you know, Holocaust denial is perhaps the most notorious and in many ways the most dangerous example, though it's not the only one, of um, a totally false version of the past, which is picked up by uh, by a lot of people simply on the sort of basis of you know, the sort of conspiracy theory uh, thinking, which doesn't require evidence. And indeed, if there is no evidence, it sort of is taken as proof of the conspiracy. With debates raging about the post-truth moment that we're living in in 2017, these questions have been raised even further to the fore. The age of post-truth or um, fake news and you know, all this sort of stuff which is coming out of President Trump's um, style of government and style of presentation simply feeds that. It feeds a sort of general suspicion of anything you're told and therefore people will go to anything which flatters them, makes them feel that they are seeing through and, and that uh, everyone out there is, is conspiring to, to fool them, but they, aren't, they know the truth. Hence the, the appeal of, of Holocaust deniers who sort of present the Holocaust as some sort of establishment hoax, which you are clever enough to see through. Sean says that the key is to have an open mind about history, but make sure that you don't go for the conspiracy theories. Yes, to have an open mind, to do some reading, and but above all, to see the sort of people who are who are speaking to you. I don't believe for one moment you should simply accept everything that a historian says or that a, well, a so-called expert says. But but there are such things as you know people who do know what they're talking about and others who others <laughs> who, who who don't. So it, it's that sort of inquiring mind an open mind, but also to be aware that there is such a thing as truth, and, and, but that also means there's such a thing as bad history. Sean Lang there from Anglia Ruskin University talking to Gemma Ware. Yeah, thanks Gemma. Okay, finally, how's about those memories we want rid of? This is something I've been thinking about for years. Now that loads of our stupid behaviour is recorded and often shared, are we headed towards a tyranny of the goody two-shoes, where media shaming demands our public figures have a past entirely free of embarrassment or scandal. There are allegations that young David Cameron smoked cannabis at Oxford University, and even that he took part in a bizarre initiation ceremony for a dining club involving a pig. You remember Piggate. In September 2015, an unauthorised biography of the then Prime Minister David Cameron claimed that while at Oxford University he had put, I quote, a private part of his anatomy in the mouth of a dead pig. Given the genuinely huge news stories that have erupted in the 18 months since, Piggate now seems almost quaint, but at the time it dominated the news. Piggate was entirely based on hearsay and only reported decades after the event. 
Cameron denied the allegations, of course, and rumoured photographic evidence has not emerged. But what will happen in the future? Now that our student pranks are stored in our phones or in our Facebook feeds or broadcast on WhatsApp group chats, in years to come, will world leaders ever be able to escape the digital record of their past misdeeds? To investigate why we're going to find it so hard to forget our younger selves and what this means for society as a whole, I spoke to Karen Weil-Jorgensen, a professor at Cardiff University's School of Journalism, Media and Cultural Studies. She told me we're already living in a surveillance society. So, of course, some of the surveillance is something that we choose to enter into when we share information on social media and when we share information with other people in in kind of face-to-face contexts. But increasingly, there's also a lot of information gathered about us without our knowledge and without our consent. And that's um, information about our online activities, And it's also information gathered on the very ubiquitous uh, CCTV cameras that are absolutely everywhere around us. So it's more or less the case that for all of us, most of the things that we do will be recorded in some form or the other. And we have very little control over how that information is being used and by whom. This information isn't going to expire or go anywhere. The internet never forgets. There is a sort of trail of all of our actions that can be dug up and used potentially against us at any point in the future. There's a shared understanding that all of us have done various stupid things in the past and that now that information about those events will be stored somewhere. If, like me, you cringe at your younger self, then this is an odd situation to be in. Can we ever escape our past? And what can we do about it? And one of the interesting things that's occurring now is that we see a pattern whereby younger people, people under the age of 35 or so, are increasingly careful about what they put online about themselves because they're aware of these dangers. Whereas older people who sort of grew up in the pre-internet, pre-social media era, perhaps uh, less kind of aware of of, of these things. I'm in my early 30s, and my generation certainly wasn't aware of these things in the early years of Facebook. But these days, my friends have mostly deleted their embarrassing drunken photos from nights out at university, or at least they've made them private. Karen says the younger generation, who've grown up knowing an employer might one day look through their social media, are more proactive. But what we're also seeing is a trend whereby younger people might be bigger users of social media that um, don't actually store that information. So uh, uh, apps like Snapchat, for example, where the message actually disappears after 24 hours. And that's precisely because of an awareness of the dangers of exposing any kind of indiscretions or activities that might not be consistent with the kind of image you want to project in public. There's a range of different studies that have Uh, shown this. Teenagers today certainly have a more tightly curated public image than most of us did in the early days of social media. But once you become a public figure, it's harder to retain such control. No one wants to dig up any dirt on me, Will Freitas, but the newsworthiness of politicians and other celebrities means people are constantly trying to uncover their secrets. We've always, or for some time, had this understanding that 
public figures deserve more scrutiny precisely because they um, have a lot of power and because there's a sense that we need to understand something about them as people in order to be able to place our trust in, in those public figures. What counts as valid scrutiny is not set in stone. Karen points out that our moral code or norms of acceptable behaviour are dynamic and they can change across time and place. Um, I don't know if, if you remember, but when Bill Clinton ran for president uh, back in the early 1990s, there was a huge debate about whether he did or did not inhale when he was holding a spliff um, as a student. And when I was in England, I experimented with marijuana a time or two, and I didn't like it and didn't inhale and never tried it again. Those kinds of questions uh, are now considered completely irrelevant uh, when a variety of different politicians, ranging from David Cameron to George W. Bush to Barack Obama, have very openly talked about their use of drugs. When asked if he'd inhaled, Obama famously replied, I inhaled uh, frequently. <laughs> that, was, uh, that, was, that was the point. But no one has a video of him smoking weed. There's obviously something very powerful about having visual evidence of bad behavior. Um, that is seen as being much more important um, as, as a kind of authentic indicator of that person's behavior. So when we have an image or when we have an audio recording that's somehow considered to be much more legitimate than, let's say, we have sort of hearsay evidence, um, as was the case with the uh, Pickgate incident, where it was a sort of second-hand source who actually told this story to the journalists who were, who were writing about it. So our modern digital existence leaves behind a trail of videos, of pictures, of texts, which is much more damning evidence of bad behaviour. And budding politicians are aware of the problem. I think one, one phenomenon that's actually quite interesting is that in the United States, it's now become customary for candidates for office to actually hire a private investigator to dig up whatever dirt they can find about the candidates themselves so that they're in a position to know what's out there about them so they're able to respond to that before it actually comes out. But it's getting harder to keep everything offline. These days, of course, one of David Cameron's mates would have filmed the pig incident. Maybe they would have put it on Snapchat. They certainly would have mentioned it over WhatsApp. Just look at what happened back in February when a member of the Cambridge University Conservative Association was expelled after he was filmed wearing a bow tie and tails while burning a £20 note in front of a homeless person. The footage had been shared on Snapchat before leaking into the media. It's pretty nasty stuff, but it's not radically worse than the alleged initiation ceremonies of the Bullingdon Club, the elitist Oxford drinking society that Cameron was once a member of, along with Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson and former Chancellor George Osborne. No one filmed them at the Bullingdon Club back in the 1980s, of course. There was no look-at-what-these-toffs-have-done-now type Twitter storm. So, given video evidence is so much more powerful than mere anecdote, I asked Karen if the Cambridge money burner could ever become Prime Minister. But I do think that we have to be quite careful about assuming that just because somebody did something stupid as a teenager, that means that they are a bad person as an adult. I don't think it's possible for anybody to be entirely digitally clean. I think all of us have done something that's 
at least a little bit stupid or at least a little bit embarrassing at some point in our past. And that information is now going to be increasingly made public. So um, I think that the days of completely clean politicians um, are over and that we just have to make decisions about what we think is actually an important set of transgressions and what is perhaps less important in terms of a public figure's ability to actually make good decisions and be a good representative. So which transgressions do actually matter? Personally, I'm not bothered at all if Britain's future Prime Minister has an online trail of uh, druggy festival photos, naked selfies or embarrassing teenage opinions. But as a society, we're not there yet. Can you imagine the tabloid reaction if they got hold of video evidence of a modern politician on drugs, or in a sex tape, or bullying their schoolmates? Karen tells me about the work of John B. Thompson, a scholar of scandal, who says some scandals matter more than others. He he distinguishes between three different types of scandals. Scandals to do with sex, scandals to do with the abuse of power, and scandals to do uh, with money, or what he calls financial scandals. And what, what he argues is that by far the most widely reported scandals are sex scandals, and scandals to do with the abuse of power and money are much uh, less widely reported. But actually, sex scandals really don't have that much consequence for democracy. They don't have that much consequence for uh, politicians' real trustworthiness and their kind of ability to be a good politician, but they're just the kind of exciting, titillating stuff that uh, we like to hear about, uh, that we think is interesting, and it also maybe enables us to have a laugh at, at politicians. This brings us back to Piggate. That story gained huge resonance on Twitter precisely because it enabled people to laugh at David Cameron, so it enabled them to kind of laugh in the face of, of the powerful. And that, I think, is a very powerful motivator for a lot of this kind of information to be disclosed. It may be quite healthy to have the odd laugh over a student prank or daft opinion that a politician thought they'd long since left behind. But now that so much is recorded and so little is forgotten, we risk creating a world where our leaders are constantly fighting off scandals dredged up from their distant pre-political past. At some point, we'll hopefully get over this. Perhaps new norms will evolve that accept people were young once and can change over time. But in the meantime, be prepared for lots more scandal. That's all we've got time for this episode. If you're interested in reading a bit more about false memories, check out our website, theconversation.com. We've got some articles there on the science of false memory, and we've also got a review of The Sense of an Ending. That's a new film based on Julian Barnes's novel, exploring how our memories of the past change over time. It's by another false memory expert from City University London, Lauren Knott. In next month's episode of The Ant Hill, we'll be looking at gaming and what happens when we turn everything into a game. But for now, a big thanks to all the academics who spoke to us and to the journalism department at City for letting us use their studios. This episode of The Ant Hill was produced by Gemma Ware and my co-host Annabelle Bly. Thanks for listening in. Goodbye. Goodbye.